criminals are supported by, and they are actively used in any any uh, elections in Georgia, and all of them beginning like, well, I cannot tell when it began. Uh, I am pretty sure that the very first election after 2012, but they are rigged. So I have no doubt what the only thing which holds Georgian power, uh, Georgian dream to power is uh, the fear of Russian invasion. Russian troops are standing uh, like uh, the distance between South Ossetia and Belize, the capital of Georgia, is about like 70 kilometers. And uh, they are actually, the distance between main road in Georgia is and South Ossetia, Russian troops, is like 20 kilometers or so. So they could... In a, in a snap, like w- within hours, they could t- cut the country in two, and it will be very hard to kind of bring it together. So, but as soon as the Russian military threat is kind of diffused, uh, you will see what will happen to Georgian dream, and you will see uh, basically even today with Georgian dream in power, which was obviously a kind of way of appeasement because it was also a deal between the West and, and Russia. At least that's, uh, uh, I would say, between specifically Hillary Clinton and, not Hillary Clinton, it was Obama's administration back then, and Russia. Because they, they clearly told them uh, that it's time for uh, Saakashvili to step down and let uh, kind of elections, and yes, they allowed elections, but those elections... Russia was meddling in those elections way more than they tried to do it in U.S. in 2016, like way more. And uh, yeah, Georgia Dream win. Uh, and they rigged every single election after that. Like so Alex, said, basically as as answering my question. Russia is diffused. You will see Alex, what happens to them. Basically, you're saying there is no uh, um, uh, polit- there is no. Uh, mutual ground, no uh, sympathy towards the idea of this Zero. party. Well, w- what is Georgian Dream's idea to begin That's with? That's not my question. <laughs> That's my question. Well, if you assume that Georgian Dream is doing nothing, then, yeah, that's kind of... But anybody dreams uh, doing nothing and have all the money in the world. Anybody. Like, makes sense. any nation, especially mm-hmm. its lazy part, doing nothing, living mm-hmm. on uh, freebies and uh, that kind of you know, um, stuff. Yep. Yeah, you, you can call it any dream. It's universal dream. It's not just Georgian dream. Yeah. And how it sounds uh, lame, but it's it's dream of many nations around USSR that they will be get something for free. Exactly. Uh, La- yeah. Lazy nations. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I should not be saying lazy nations, but every nation, especially after corrupt Soviet Union, with no private property and with no incentive whatsoever to, you know, work, um that you you are right a lot of uh, but but it's not just ussr uh, just look around look, there are plenty of poor nations and the main reason is uh, well they uh, they are supporting socialists for that same reason because socialists promise them all the goods in the world uh, without would, having to do anything i would say they are supporting populists uh, in one form or Correct. another. Populists. And can so, we give like but, a broad uh, 
understanding for the audience because we delve into specifics broadly and correct me. So Georgia had a change, major change in the government after Saakashvili became Georgian president and he reformed with Kaha Bandukidze, Georgia as a country significantly. Unfortunately, then he was essentially overturned after Russia invaded Georgia from South Ossetia and South Ossetia specifically as a part of Georgia was invaded. And after this military defeat or shortcoming here in terms of military situation, uh, also Russians were able to use the leverage via their money and their oligarchs to, to create a party that overturned the site of sorts of European integration and Saakashvili was out. And that's, that was the point where Georgia went opposite direction of sorts and tying it to Ukraine. Saakashvili, after that, a former president of Georgia, uh, traveled to Ukraine. He was a friend of previous president Yushchenko and even a friend of Poroshenko at that time. And he became a governor of Odessa region. So essentially he was governing Odessa region, made uh, successful reforms, successful tax reforms and customs specifically, which was uh, something never heard in that area because it was significantly corrupt. And uh, because of the political infighting, specifically with former internal minister or a minister of internal affairs, Avakov, and deterioration of political climate and his affiliation with Poroshenko. Saakashvili uh, was ousted from Ukraine as well and left his position as the governor of Odessa region. So that's the backstory. And then eventually he returned to Ukraine and not very successful. And then eventually he returned to Georgia. And right now he's incarcerated in Georgia because as I stated earlier, uh, after he fled, fled is a bad word, after he left, uh, because of Russian money, Russian influence, Russian oligarch, and the political party that was sponsored by Russian money, uh, the tide change, changed in Georgia into the opposite direction, which became semi-populist, mostly, and somewhat favoring Russia's interests. Um, very true. And uh, one thing I wanted to add, uh, still, uh, you should consider Georgia, there is still strong uh, power influence from the West. There are a lot of NGOs working with the West and they are uh, Georgian population, listen to them. And they are, I, I should say, they are very professional and very, uh, I, I like, uh, I, I like them personally. Georgian president also, even though she was uh, considered as ally with this Georgian dream, she kind of, uh, at least at this point, she's uh, aligned with the West and she uh, is aligned with NATO and uh, EU. And again, you know, Georgia will approach West as fast as West wants to uh, let it approach. Uh, as soon as Russian troops, uh, like, again, Georgian population put up with these rigged elections for the only reason that the distance between Russian troops 
and Georgian capital is too small. That's the only thing that Georgian Dream currently exploits. Otherwise, their support will be ended in minutes, not even hours. Um, and they know that every time they make any kind of pro-Russian statement, they are almost excusing themselves for saying so. And they say, this is what our team believes. So they don't even allow themselves to speak in the name of Georgian people because they know uh, how much support, so-called support, they have among population. It will be over in very short time. Again, Alex, thank you for answering. And by the way, personally, I believe Georgians much more pro-Western, let's say, than Belarusians. So um, I, I know Georgians are creative pro-Western, and uh, but not all, of, of course, like every society, you have the different people, but uh, every society. So, But it's a very interesting uh, progressive society. I know it. Georgians are uh, good people. I mean, they are pro progressive. You are progressive. So speaking of Georgia and Ukraine, uh, specifically, Alex, uh, we already touched this briefly. Maybe you can give us more insight. The former Minister of Defense of Georgia was essentially fighting as a volunteer in Ukraine, on Ukraine's side against Russian invaders, if I recall correctly. And how, does the, how did the situation change in terms of Georgian volunteers, their numbers, willingness of people in Georgia to join the fight for essentially democracy and against You know, uh, for the former Ministry of Defense, it turns out there are two of them, both in Ukraine. So um, one of them was um, allied with uh, Saakashvili early on. He started reform in Georgian military. But then uh, things didn't went very well uh, between them. So he accused Saakashvili of some kind of uh, crazy things. Uh, then he he wasn't arrested or something, but uh, basically he was... Oh, then he was uh, placed from Ministry of Defense to Ministry of Wine, etc. But he didn't really want to develop Georgian wine. He made some comments that, you know, Russians will drink no matter what, even the pee. And uh, like Russians uh, protested. Um, so anyway, uh, so he was with Saakashvili for a short time, but he's kind of independent. He's not with Georgia Dream. Actually, Georgia Dream placed him uh, into prison for a short time. Uh, then he went to Ukraine. I saw some footages. I do not know how effective he was as a military guy. But um, and then there was another one also at some point. Uh, Kezerashvili is his name. So I'm not sure which one you were talking about. But I, uh, I don't want I do not want to kind of emphasize ministers fighting in Ukraine because it's really genuine desire of every honestly every Georgian man, you would have like thousands and thousands. To begin with, you know, in 2014, when these things happened in Ukraine, a lot of Georgians went there because Georgian troops, uh, no, uh, we did not have very large troops, but we did fight in, in um, Iraq. Uh, we did fight in Afghanistan. We were helping, and I, I think uh, 
uh, American partners, UK partners, uh, Western partners were very happy. Actually, in Afghanistan, Georgian troops were the largest non-NATO members there. And Americans uh, often uh, refer to that. Uh, so in 2012, after Georgian dream came to power, well, they realized what will, would uh, happen to military. So I think uh, to a large extent, they were relieved when in 2014, they got an opportunity to fight for freedom. A lot of them went to Ukraine. And I know that after this war started, the desire of Georgians to join that legion is enormous. Um, and you would have thousands and thousands more. I do not know to what extent actually Ukrainian government want that because um, many of them would not have military experience because for the last 10 years, Georgia itself were kind of appeasing Russians. And uh, actually, we did have troops still in Afghanistan, I think, uh, until the very, almost very last month. So uh, I do not know... Uh, who exactly, but I know that people do support them. I do think that after this is over, a lot of people will return and they will take governing positions in Georgia. And I would personally, you know, I would be member of uh, a lot of blogs within Georgia. And, and uh, honestly, I would question what the hell you were doing like in the last two years. I think uh, those people who proved that they are kind of pro-Western, they should hold the power, not somebody who was basically dodging the, I don't know. I think Georgia needs to look at their military the same way Israelis do. Because it, these things do matter uh, when you have this crazy neighbor um, at your border. And Azerbaijan army is very strong too. We have very friendly relationship with every other neighbor except for Russia. But you need to have army, you know, uh, that that will add to your respect, not the other way around. So, that's my personal take again. I'm not here uh, representing Georgian government or something, but I do know the sentiment among people. They are very strong support of Ukrainians and a lot of males want to go and fight for Ukraine. Thank you, Alex. We all know that you are a Georgian spy. It goes without saying. And thank you, Revengeism, for bringing up uh, that topic. Every one of our listeners think that you are Boris from GoldenEye, the James Bond movie, the one who keeps saying, I am invincible. But um, Ishmael, you have now the Egyptian uh, Jed icon as a profile picture. So please go ahead. Yeah, Hi, guys. From a kind of mild and muggy Toronto afternoon. I just have two observations. Uh, first, with regard to Belarus, with uh, the Belarus uh, leader in exile, Svetlana uh, Sikhanskaya, uh, she has a great Twitter account, and uh, but she has an interesting uh, habit where she refers to Lukashenko as Lukashenka, and in fact, I think all her cabinet in exile do the same thing, basically implying that Lukashenko is Putin's bitch. You know what I mean? <laughs> And uh, But that's the first observation. The second one is uh, I was here a couple of days ago, maybe about a week ago, talking about uh, Patriarch Kirill in uh, Moscow with the Church of Moscow or the, or the Russian Orthodox Church and uh, wondering when he was going to be sanctioned. And I know a lot of people said that he shouldn't be sanctioned, but obviously now the, the, uh, the word is coming up from Europe that he is going to be sanctioned uh, pretty damned quick. And uh, I think personally, it's not before time. I think that that whole operation 
which is basically, you know, just an extension of the money laundering arm of the, uh, of uh, sort of, uh, you know, Putin's inner circle, uh, if not Putin himself, is that uh, needs to be uh, brought to heel and uh, needs to be ground into the dust. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you, Ishmael. Um, yeah, I'll leave Walter to comment on this one, but very quick note. If you're the head of a church and you have more money than to maybe buy a mid-range car and maybe buy a couple of nice suits and put some food on the table, then you should definitely be sanctioned. But Walter, please take this question. Yeah, I'll be sure because I'm under the subway and uh, it's pretty loud here. So, yeah, Russian Orthodox Church is an extension of the FSB network. It's a known thing. And uh, essentially, Patriarch Kirill, the head of Russian Orthodox Church, is a high-ranking FSB slash KGB officer, which we, who reports directly to Putin. So that's the, the baseline, essentially. And the network of their priests, at least overwhelming majority of them in Ukraine is uh, considered a second layer source or a first layer, depends how you count it, of FSB agents who engage in uh, propaganda and other even direct action activities, for example, as you, if you recall, and I would like to remind you that when Russians invaded from the north, at least three priests of Russian Orthodox Church church in Ukraine, northwest of Kiev, were apprehended because they were giving directions and correcting artillery fire and helping Russian forces and Russian troops. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, every single uh, square inch of their property holdings in, in you know, Europe and, and sort of like Eastern Europe should be confiscated and uh, contributed towards the rebuild of uh, Ukraine, given that they've completely sanctioned and spiritually underwritten this uh, barbaric invasion. All right, let's go to uh, Jason. Hey, everyone. Uh, thanks for giving me opportunity to ask a question i just had one question today what is a what is a reasonable expectation uh for air defense uh anti-air defense against these missile attacks um over the course of the next few months we keep hearing more about ukraine getting more anti-air support um and uh, of course we want more and they should they deserve more but my question is uh you know based on what we what we understand about the anti-air support that Ukraine is getting from other nations, um, will it ever get to the point where these nightly attacks can be uh, largely prevented, or is that a pipe dream? What, what is what is our expectation of what can be done here to kind of end this or severely limit at least these nightly uh, uh, guided missile attacks? Thank you. Thank you, Jason. I think this is a question for Walter or Axel. Walter, Axel, would you like to take this one? 
Excellent. If you're here, go ahead. If Axel is not here, I'd say it's a issue of saturation, issue of coverage, an issue of territory, which is, well, big to say the least. So you have to essentially resort to covering major population centers that require strategic level anti-air defenses in Ukraine, it's S-300s and book systems, which are mobile. And regarding essentially potential to destroy everything or down everything that flies into Ukraine from Russia, it's going to be challenging because you have to have the ability to detect. It's number one. This is somewhat manageable. You can detect those, even though also it creates problems because of the large territory. And the next step is essentially to be able to have systems somewhere in place alongside the rocket uh, route to be able to down it. And it's going to be challenging. So eventually there is strategic level anti-air defenses, which cover major population centers and infrastructure objects. And potentially we can bolster those to such levels where they could mitigate uh, rocket strikes into those, into populations, population centers. But it would be next to impossible to destroy literally everything because of the coverage and the problems with potential to down everything because of the territory. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I mean, this just further illustrates the need for Crimea to return to uh, Ukraine. Um, I mean, it's already uh, to to eliminate the Russian invaders and occupation in Crimea, because I think that that the their Russia's ability to mount some of these strikes from that territory as well as the Black Sea is something that needs to be halted. What, one, one other question, are the guided missile strikes, are those all painted uh, or are those, I mean, are there people, does that, every time that there's an accurate guided missile strike, is that the result of somebody on the ground who's infiltrated or can they, can they do that uh, remotely? Uh, again, I'm not an expert here. However, well, the Russians, the Russians have yeah, satellites. The Russians yeah, have satellites, and there's absolutely no reason to think that the Russian satellites are not working. That's number one. And on top of that, indeed, there are um, controllers or those who direct fire on the ground, unfortunately. And this problem is being addressed, let's put it this way, but it's tough because of the number and the, the territory overall. Uh, and on top of that, there is an issue with the, with the system itself that is being used. Essentially, it's a programmed, old school programmed rocket that essentially is already pre-programmed about its flight path. And uh, again, I have to leave it to someone who knows something way more because I barely know anything about it. I'm just speculating here about uh, potential to kind of change the direction of these rockets in flight because it was essentially alleged that this happens occasionally 
when Russians fire these even older versions of rockets, they essentially are able to somewhat correct the direction to which they're flying to and kind of present more challenges to Ukrainian anti-air defenses. Great. Thanks again, y'all. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jason. Let's go to uh, Absalom. Absalom, please go ahead. Hello. Uh, can you hear me? Loud and clear, Absalom. Please go ahead. Perfect. Um, I have two questions uh, for you all. Um, first of all, it's um, um, about uh, equipment going to Ukraine or in this case, uh, uh, possible future equipment, because um, with the signing of the Land Lease uh, Act uh, and uh, with the statement of Stoltenberg that says uh, that uh, NATO is prepared to uh, support Ukraine for years to come, possibly, uh, do you think that we will see uh, maybe more training on more Western and more difficult equipment? I know that uh, um, artillery, it's... not so difficult to change from a system to another, but I was thinking about uh, maybe in this case, uh, air denial or uh, armor or uh, something uh, that uh, may will uh, uh, maybe make a difference uh, if sent in uh, enough numbers. And uh, second question, uh, do you think that uh, NATO and the West will still support Ukraine? Uh, if they are successful on uh, uh, repelling the Russian attack and so maybe regaining Crimea, that's I know it's kind of too different, uh, difficult and uh, speculative question, but I was curious. Thank you. So first of all, when it comes to air denial, air denial is a dual component. First of all, you need a radar solution to detect incoming air traffic and secondly you need a firing solution which is an anti-air defense system air denial anti-air defense two words two phrases two concepts for the same thing which is air defense system so will ukrainian troops assimilate air defense systems or new defense systems fast enough to field them and not start operating them yes it is possible Are they asking for that? Yes, they are. Are they receiving systems that they have already received training on and know how to operate? Yes, they are. Are they receiving newer systems that they need to train on in order to operate successfully? Yes, they are. Have we seen evidence of those newly fielded systems operating within the battle space and scoring against Russian assets? Yes, we have. As for armor, I think the same story applies. They're probably receiving new tanks. They are receiving new APCs. They are receiving armored uh, ambulances as well. So that's to answer your first question. Um, Your second question was what? Can you please repeat that? Will NATO still support them after they win the war and take back Crimea? Yeah, as for going for Crimea, I think Walter is the most... uh, or the best suited person to answer that. So again, is the question about uh, um, Crimea returning to Ukraine's government control? 
Yes, I was um, asking if you think that NATO will support uh, support Ukraine to uh, reestablish its uh, internationally recognized border. That was uh, my question. It's a far-fetched question. Eventually, yes, Crimea will return to Ukraine because it is Ukraine. Simple as that. <laughs> there is no other way. It is Ukraine, period. It's internationally recognized as part of Ukraine and borders of Ukraine include Crimea. Nothing changed, whatever Russia claims or whatever Russia presumes or tries to to impose upon the rest of the world in a weird, convoluted way. So that said, uh, still it's a far-fetched, uh, distant, somewhat distant uh, prospect because right now what should be addressed is the elimination of Russian invaders on Russian-occupied Ukrainian territories, which are in the east, in the northeast, near Kharkiv, and in the south of Ukraine. Having said that, if that is successful, we can move on to the next stage. And a lot of, of, a lot of the um, circumstances will depend on the current state of Russia after at least these Ukrainian territories are retaken from Russian invaders. So the issue of Crimea might be addressed in few ways, diplomatic way or negotiations. But eventually, as I stated, it is Ukraine and uh, it is internationally recognized as Ukraine, despite what Russia claims. I fully agree with you. Sorry if I wasn't clear more. (laughs) Sorry. No worries, Absalom. Does this answer your questions? Yes, it does as uh, much as possible because I know uh, I was uh, talking about, uh, you know, hypothetical in the second one. So thank you and uh, please continue. (laughs) Well, thank you, Absalom. Golden rule, do not cross your bridges until you come to them. And we go to James, and then Jingo, and then Brian, and then Liu. So, James, please go ahead. Hey, thank you, Em. Uh, hey, guys. Uh, I don't know if I'm okay to circle back a little bit on the leader of the uh, Russian Orthodox Church on whether he should be sanctioned or not. Uh, I just the one little bit that I'll add was a few days ago or last week when the group, you know, had that visitor from that uh, podcast that he uh, has, I won't name his name. He had a, you know, debrief his own space and he had a debrief with all his followers. And one of the points that they were bringing up, uh, this was like in the space that they were talking about is that, that, you know, they have the approval of the Russian church. And so that this must be good or it must be okay. And I think that's important uh, that we hold, you know, the Russian church accountable if they are aiding in this, you know, terrible war. Uh, But that was just a small little bit that I found interesting that they really were talking up the, the idea that the church, you know, sanctioned this. So everything must be okay. And uh, that's all I have. Well, thank you, James. Well, it is important to note that bad faith actors will use socioeconomic, sociopolitical, socio-religious fault lines to strike at the coherence or the well-being of a community, a society, a nation, a country, any unit that you want to look at. 
on the wall to space we don't want to brand any certain ethnic group any certain religious group any certain political spectrum as a bad faith actor but we do recognize that russian security services have long infiltrated their own church and they have long weaponized their own church against their own people and maybe the populations of other countries now how that plays out in the grander scheme of things when it comes to their global information and disinformation operations it is now quite obvious now that how that plays out when it comes to the american political uh scene we don't want to speculate on that we don't want to address that because I, then again it's domestic policies i understand which person you're referring to and i understand which space he went back to and start to debrief his own followers quote unquote on how he invaded and conquered the walter report space and i'm quite sure that we have uh basically called him out found out everything about his record and what not the thing is uh there is absolutely no way to convince anyone to consider different sources of information and if you can actually convince them to consider different sources of information you cannot guarantee that they have the education or the mental faculties to conduct a thorough critical thinking process where they can come up with the right conclusion or a good conclusion or a positive conclu- conclusion that can lead them on to carry out more research and eventually adjust or learn or change course it is sad and it is it is one of the realities of life and we just deal with it and we just move on and with that uh, thank you for bringing in uh, bringing it up to our attention and we go to uh, jingo i just have a very quick question it is reported that the uh, communication to the mariupol has been reestablished and also the uk sorry according to the defensenews.com uk is going to send cargo drones as the as part of this package to ukraine will that change how mariupol will look in the future that's all my, that's all what i have jingo can you repeat your message are you ta- are you saying that the situation in mariupol has changed So the first is the communication with Navistol has just been reestablished that's number 1 number 2 Great Britain just pledged is going to include cargo drone drone which is capable of delivering weapons and food to Ukraine as a, as a military aid package so my question is is there any insight of these new developments especially if we can get i can get comments from people like a uh, Mr. Spencer on in the space that would be fantastic that's what i have yeah thank Jane. you Ringo. so yes 88 uh address that by all means yeah Jane. yeah i re- i read about i just read about the communication to Ma- to mariupol being reestablished that's good news um on the drones yeah you're correct they were announced yesterday by the by the british government it's the maloy t1 t 150 or the T150 whatever you'd like to call it Maloy Aeronautics 
they they make a heavier lifting drone that, uh, that uh, called the T four hundred, which I I expect I, I hope to see them ship that into into Ukraine. The T the T one fifty can hold up to sixty eight kilograms. Now, how much ammunition, what weapons they'll be able to ship in on one of these? Uh, that's I don't know if they'll be getting used for Mario Mario Paul. To be to be quite frank with you, um, I'm not too sure this will be where these will be utilised as they they're few and far between that are getting sent over. Um, it's just a new piece of equipment that's come out and been tested by the the Marines here in the UK, and I cannot imagine that the the Ukrainians will be wanting to have them shot out the sky as soon as they go up because these these are very. The, these are these are more of a for heavy lifting. They're, they're not armed. These they're, they're in no way armed. They could they could be armed in a way, but then I don't think the ones are getting are are the ones they are getting are not the ones that can be armed. Put it that way. So these will just be using used for heavy lifting. I, I imagine they'll probably be used in in the likes of the Donbass and, and places like that. It's just to. To to put one of these in that situation, I don't know what uh, what what John Spencer will have to say on this. Um, I just think it's a very precarious situation, um, and I'm not too sure that's what these will be utilised for. Good bit of kit. We'll see what they're used for. Let's see. Maybe they're covering, saying they're sending the T-150, and they'll send, in fact, the T-400, because I'm pretty sure that holds 160 kilos. Uh, don't quote me on that. Might be 140 or 160, um, and they both have about the same 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 range. It's, it's, I think it's about six, 60 or 70 kilometers. So, not not the biggest range compared to other drones which are about, um, and they are very expensive. And I know they're not getting a lot of them on the uh, to, to go with because there isn't a lot of them around at the moment. Um, they ha- there is other nations that have them. Whether they start giving them, um, we'll wait and see. But that's all I can tell you on them just now. I'm not too sure they'll be used for lifting weapons and potentially food drops. But dropping food from a height is dangerous um, because you might just be wasting it all. It, it might just be damaged as soon as it, as, as soon as it, it hits the ground. So you, it's, it is a very precarious situation. But as as uh, Colonel John Spencer always says, Mariupol is still not falling. It was supposed to fall. It's supposed to fall for the past 60 days and 24 hours. They've held it out this long. We don't know what they've got there. They could be, they could, there could be relevant supplies. So let's not believe everything we read on the news. Thank you. Are you, are you aware of any uh, touch and go capabilities for those drones? I'm not sure. I'll need to look into it. They're, they're, they're more of like a quadcopter. Um, let me look into it and, and find out. But they, I mean, they, they built one. I know that Malloy, Malloy bought, built one to carry a person. Like they have, they, they've been testing one that, that, that you can like sit on, ride up like a bike, which the witch can touch and go. Whether this has the same, um, I, I know it doesn't have the same um, technology, but whether it can maybe be utilized in the same way i don't know it definitely cannot carry a human no all right thank you 88 brian please go ahead hey thanks and 
Um, I was wondering if someone could comment on, um, I'm not sure if I got bad news off of Twitter or not about Ukrainian Air Force pilots training on the F-16 platform. Uh, again, I, I don't know if I just saw an unconfirmed source and was wondering if someone could speak to that, if in fact it's not uh, highly confidential at this point. Thanks. Brian, you found a source that says the Ukrainian pilots are training on F-16s? Again, it was not from a credible source like Kiev. Can you just send me the link? Uh, And I saw this about uh, a week ago, so um, I can try to track it. You don't have the link? I I do not. I do not. no, we, we have no information regarding American or, uh, sorry, we have no information regarding Ukrainian pilots training on F-16s, but Domen. I've seen the same rumors from Euromaidan PR, among other, um, whom I think Walter follows and I think are considered a trusted source, but it's just rumors and speculation as far as I can tell. Um, there are rumors, or I guess not speculation, there are rumors of it. Um, I don't think anybody's anybody in a position of authority has been able to confirm this or has been willing to confirm this, more importantly. Yeah, Dom, another thing is it, it won't be confirmed nor denied. It will be one of these questions if it was put to any any politician within within Ukraine or America, is this happening? They would probably neither confirm nor deny it. But we do need to imagine if this is going to go on for a long time, Pilots will eventually will probably be getting to st- uh, be taught on certain airframes, etc. Because it will take a long time. They're not going to start it in seven it's... months' time. They know how long this is going to go on for. They have a rough idea. So yeah, you've probably seen whispers and and a little bit of here and a little bit of there. We'll we'll just take it with a pinch of salt. But read between the lines; it might be happening. And do we, let's not preach about it if it is. Until we see the F seventeens flying through the skies of Kiev, then we'll just imagine we'll just play it like they're not. Exactly, Austin. Right, Brian. So to sum up your question or the answer to your question, it's either happening or not. If it's not happening, it could also be happening. And if it is happening, well, it's good news. There you go. Uh, Christopher, please go ahead. So this is a little comment. I noticed that that Ukraine went under a another, the entire country went underneath a missile warning again. And there are some footage or pictures of showing up of there were some, some explosions throughout Ukraine. So I'm guessing it's the, I think, I know it was mentioned yesterday that someone said that the, Russia may start using a, shotgun terror attack with the missiles throughout like the next several days because of May 9th it's coming up soon so I've just that one little thing that I wanted to bring up yeah well thank you Christopher um, carpet bombing has always been has always been on the table it's just another um, exercise in futility and a clear, blatant show of the illegal invasion of Ukraine and the illegal application of force against civilian population centers and the indiscriminate targeting of Ukrainian infrastructure and Ukrainian cities and the Ukrainian people. So, yeah. Thank you so much, Christopher. Uh, Leo, please go ahead. 
Yeah, hi. Um, first of all, I just wanted to say thank you for this space. I've been listening since almost the beginning, and the um, uh, only issue I have with the place is that it's totally addictive, and it's hard to get anything done when you guys are talking, which is 24-7. Um, I wanted to uh, comment briefly on Belarus. Um, Colonel Spencer had mentioned um, the um, potential for Belarus, Belarusian involvement in the in um, the illegal invasion of Ukraine. Um, I lived in Belarus from 2017 to 2020, and um, I can honestly say that I saw a tremendous change, um, pro-Western change in the general public during the time I was there. Um, I think that that change and um, also a growing, a rapid and growing um, disillusion with Lukashenko that had been going on for a long time, but um, the population's feelings about Lukashenko changed dramatically during COVID when uh, he denied um, that COVID was an issue and um, hospitals were full, people were dying, and um, Lukashenko was um, essentially being a COVID denier, saying that no Belarusians would die of COVID-19. Um, and that experience added to um, you know a long-simmering um, feeling of frustration with the Lukashenko government. Um, and that happened just before the elections, during which um, Lukashenko really uh, made a huge mistake by allowing Tikhanovskaya um, to run. Um, he didn't think, I think he even said publicly, he didn't think anyone would vote for a woman, so he allowed her to run. Of course, she was only in the race because her husband was a leading candidate and had been um, thrown in jail. In any event, um, my understanding from from my time there from the people i know there is that uh, it, the election was actually a landslide for uh, tikhanovska um i did some election observation there and the fraud was overwhelming so um i think um in my experience the at least the people in the cities in minsk in particular are very anti-Russian. Um, that sentiment grew strongly while I was there. Um, and um, if anything, has become <laughs> even even deeper and more profound after Russia assisted in putting down the um, enormous protests that occurred after the rigged election. Um, so my feeling is that, um, yeah, Lukashenko is in, in dangerous territory, um, particularly um, because the public is much more pro-Ukrainian than pro-Russian. And um, anyway, that's my comment, and you can move me uh, back down to listener. Thank you. Thank you, Leo. Alex? Thank you. I wanted to address, uh, there was a question about Russian Orthodox Church. And... Um, like I said, it, it looks like Russia is trying to pull all resources they can. Uh, because recently, a Russian or leader of Russian Orthodox Church, who was, I, I believe, almost silent since the beginning of, the, of this war, a couple of days ago, he said something like, um, Russia never invaded any country. Um, and it is so rare for a so such a powerful country to not invade anybody 
Uh, we are only defending our borders. So two messages here. First, uh, it's in line with um, typical Russian narrative. Because uh, of all wars that uh, Russia and Soviet Union made, uh, only two stick in Russia's mind. One is 1812 and one is 1941 to 1945. In both cases, uh, it was Russian territory that kind of the most of war took place. All other wars are somehow washed out. Only historians know about them. Russians In Russian psyche, they somehow do not stick. And that's what this guy refers to. However, taking into account that he speaks about it now, like the question is here, how is the Russian Orthodox Church viewing this invasion? So is he saying that like extending the border of Russia to include Ukraine. So does he, I believe it deserves asking directly, does he imply that the territory of Ukraine now annexed by Russia? Because how should we understand that Russia has only defending its borders? Like this is complete nonsense. Russian troops are clearly in the sovereign territory of Ukraine. Another thing I wanted to mention is until very recently, actually, I do not know current state, but until very recently, almost like a couple of years ago, Russian church was divided, like very deeply divided. There was Western Russian church and there was Moscow Russian church. Now, Western Russian church uh, knows that uh, like church in Moscow is KGB, um, KGB associate pretty much. Because, uh, and honestly, you may remember that Bolsheviks until, I mean, almost 30s, late 30s, they were executing priests. Um, and I believe it was during the Second World War that Stalin allowed, now, of course, KGB uh, organized this whole thing, but Stalin allowed Russian Orthodox Church to come back to life. And uh, ever since, there were two churches. After fall of Soviet Union, I know that Moscow was trying to kind of reunify the church. I'm not sure to what extent this happened. Um, it could even be the way that each church in the West is independent, each Russian Orthodox Church in the West is independent and has to decide independently whether they agree with Moscow or not. That's one thing. The other thing is, um, uh, yeah, Russian Orthodox Church somehow and sometimes do some miracles. Like I believe in one of the, or one of the priests or something, they um, declared Stalin to be the saint. So one of their saints is Stalin which is clearly nonsense because Stalin was atheist and he was executing thousands of priests. So how on earth uh, they come to this conclusion is it's anybody's guess. But I think it deserves directly asking what the church thinks about events in Ukraine, specifically Russian fight in Ukraine. Are they also kind of defending their borders or what the hell is this? And uh, the second, I expect, because there will be
Mic check. I can hear you, but we lost Alex. Alex is back. Alex, please continue. Yeah, so I'm not sure at what point I was lost, but uh, so I think it deserves directly asking Russian Orthodox Church what they think about Russian troops fighting in Ukraine. Is that their borders or is that invasion into Ukraine? That's one thing. Because he has to answer, because they recently, actually, Ukrainian church has one of them is under Moscow church. And I believe they uh, they were against this aggression, even though some of the priests are kind of uh, even supporting Russians. But that, that's one thing. And the other thing, Russian society itself will be deeply divided. Because at some point they have to, and I believe each Russian will have to make a choice where they want to stand in this. Because um, Russian religion is already there. Uh, and I know Russian Orthodox Church in the West uh, until very recently, and I do not know even current state, but until very recently they did not, they didn't want to have anything to do with Moscow Church. So those are kind of, points. Um, as for question whether he should be banned or not, I do not know. He certainly was agreed by KGB. But if you like ban the top person of Russian Orthodox Church, I'm not sure with whom even to have conversation. You still have a counterparty to have a dialogue. Maybe it should go down to like second level, third level, so that uh, the support of Putin's Invasion and terror machine is weakened, but um, yeah, I do not have an opinion on on Gundyaev himself at this point because uh, again, you may have to talk to somebody. It's the same way whether we should kick Russia out of UN Security Council somewhere to that extent. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Uh, let's go to Peter. First time Peter is on when I'm on. Peter, please go ahead. Good evening, gentlemen and ladies. I've been following you for one and a half months. Um, I'm from Warsaw, Polish father, Swedish mother, Danish citizen, living in Poland since 1991. Uh, I have this one question I've been thinking about quite a lot lately. Uh, the question, to what degree the Ukrainians are afraid of a nuke strike, a nuclear atom bomb being thrown onto uh, Ukrainian territory, especially in the light of what many in the West politicians and especially the right wing in, this, in the United States and so on, they explain that we cannot... Uh, yeah, long story short, not afraid, apprehensive. We understand that Russia is unpredictable entity and a state that sponsors terrorism and state that perpetrates terrorism and genocide. Obviously, it's uh, you can expect anything from that. However, yeah, uh, afraid, not at all. Apprehensive, yes. Will it change the course of the war? Probably not, because it will only solidify the resolve of Ukrainian people to fight back. Because, again, it's a fight for survival. There is no other way than to fight back and push them back, because the alternative is death. 
simple as that. And you shouldn't be afraid as well, because as we stated many times, what Russians do with their nuclear arsenal, it's uh, saber-rattling, intimidation, and fear-mongering. Simple as that. This is how they utilize their nuclear option. Yeah. That also what I was thinking that for the Ukrainians, it's a question of well, choosing between another Holodomor or to win the war even being nuked. The only Holodomor that's happening right now is the southern countries of the southern hemisphere who is not buying grains. I mean, the Ukrainians are fighting a war not to, absolutely not to take, you know, any shred, any one millimeter of the suffering that they are going through and the genocide that they are going through and stealing their equipment, uh, bombing their lands, destroying their crops, stealing their crops, and, and so on and so forth. I'm sorry, Peter, but your argument is a little bit on the uh, sensationalist slash hyperbole at this point. No, I just wanted to find out whether they, the Ukrainians are mentally prepared and they're willing to do... Uh, to, to, to fight to the end, as you say. I, I'm think, on your I think they have demonstrated for more than 70 yes. days now that they are mentally prepared, that they are in yeah. the mental right space, that they are fighting, that they are winning, that they have cleared an entire front. The northern yeah. front has been entirely cleared of Russian forces. The yeah. Russian forces have given up I'm, I'm following it. Retreated, I'm following it, on, and I'm seeing hang it and feeling it. Hang on, Peter. They have retreated on an entire front. They have given up on an entire front. They withdrew from northeast, northwest, north of Kiev. They ran away. They yeah, I know. I, I'm following it. I'm, in, I'm, I'm, I'm following it, and I'm very aware of it. I'm, in, I'm very impressed, and 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 and. and uh, I hope I hope the best for, for Ukrainians. I just wanted to clear out with you guys if there is any doubt uh, within the Ukrainians, as there is in the West and in the right wing and 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 in the left wing and so on, that they give I don't in care about the left wing and the right wing. Yeah, no, that's expression that, of yeah. politics. They went. Yes. They went to schools. They had parents at home, and then they went to college, and then they read some books. Some of them read. Uh, Stoicism philosophy. Some of them read uh, Catcher in the Rye. Some of them read The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Some of them developed a brand of politics that they embrace because they believe in it. Their government is supplying the Ukrainian government with military aid, with economic aid, with medical aid, because they are undergoing an invasion that they are fighting. So, Certain people on the left, certain people on the right, they get to enjoy their freedoms to express their opinions, to support their own brand of politics, to vote for it, because that's what democracy is about. And we are not going to brand people on the left as whatever, or people on the right as whatever. But we have governments, centrist people, who decided to become civil servants, who decided to specialize in studying history, linguistics, diplomacy, governance, finance, military matters, military affairs, 
intelligence, counterintelligence, analysis, wargaming. And for some reason, those people who are citizens of those countries and those nations, and therefore 